This episode of Full Stack Radio is brought to you by Laracasts. Laracasts is the de facto community and educational resource for PHP developers of all skill levels. Whether you're new to Laravel or you're hoping to level up your dev team, Laracasts was constructed entirely and exclusively for you. It's a lot like Netflix for your career. I think there's over 500 videos on there right now covering all sorts of topics from Laravel itself to different backend tools, front-end frameworks like Vue.js and React, design patterns, how to get better at Git. There's something on there for everybody. So check it out if you have a chance at laracasts.com and thanks again to laracast for sponsoring full stack radio enjoy the show hey everyone welcome to another episode of the full stack radio podcast where i talk to people in the software industry about everything from user experience and product design to unit testing and system administration i'm your host adam wathen as always and today i'm here with woody zool how's it going woody Doing real good. Thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's early Sunday morning, but uh, hopefully we can put together something good for everybody. So if you don't mind, can you give a a brief kind of introduction about yourself and kind of what you do? Well, sure. Um, So first of all, I'm a software developer, and uh, I've been programming for a little over 30 years. I really love to create software, but I've noticed over the years that uh, in a lot of places I've worked, it's been kind of difficult to do your best work. So I've often gravitated towards a more managerial position in trying to help make an environment where we can get more work done, better work done, a more enjoyable work environment. So right now I'm working as a consultant geared towards that. Let's make a better environment where we can more naturally get good things done. Awesome. The reason I wanted to have you on the show is because for the last, I guess, I guess it's been a couple years now, that uh, yourself and uh, you know a host of other people in the Agile community have been talking about the no estimates hashtag. And it's been kind of a, a controversial discussion between a lot of people, and a lot of people have a lot of strong opinions on it. Do you mind kind of giving a little bit of background into what that's all about, what that means, uh, what events or questions kind of got the conversation started? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So first of all, I, I don't think there's actually a lot of people um, involved in this discussion in Twitter. It's just a handful of people. I think across the world, there's quite a few people that are interested in it. Uh, I've talked to at least several hundred, so I know that there's at least that many. And to kind of be clear about it is, for me, no estimates is an exploration in making things better. I think that uh, we have a a process, I guess would be the word, in, in software that's commonly followed where we somehow or another end up making estimates to help us make decisions about things. So I noticed that not always being a useful way to go and frequently not being a useful way to go, and yet we just follow it. So it's sort of the idea of uh, this is a practice we just assume we need to do. And so over time, I've talked about that. And about three years ago, I found some people in Twitter, Vasco Duarte and Neil Killick. Vasco's up in Finland and uh, Neil is in Australia. And we just started discussing these ideas and through the accidental use of a hashtag that said no estimates to talk about a specific uh, article I'd written about a project where I used no estimates, that hashtag sort of caught on with a few people. And and it it brings a little bit of uh, negative attention to the concept of of what we're talking about. But the basic idea is this. For me, I want to make that really clear. Everybody's got their own ideas. But for me, no estimates is about specific ways to make decisions without using estimates. In other words, we could say, just like we could say, we have a, uh, I'll take my coffee with no sugar, or we can have it with sugar. Either way, we can have our coffee. And it's sort of the same thing. So we have many decisions we need to make in our daily work and uh, long-range decisions and short-range decisions. 
Uh, how are we going to do this? Are we going to need to hire people? All sorts of things. And some of those decisions are served well by estimates and some of them aren't. What sort of decisions are people using estimates to make usually? Ah, good question. I unfortunately don't have uh, some resources that I usually have available to me. But uh, I've been having these discussions and little workshops about this for a long time. So I've gathered a lot of information from people about what they use estimates for. But very typically in software development, and the kinds of estimates I'm talking about when I say no estimates, is the estimates about the amount of time it will take to do some chunk of software development work. It could be as small as uh, how long will it take to do this particular task, let's like say add a column to a table in a database. And then it could be as big as, uh, you know, should we take on this project? And so, uh, so they're going to make a guess about how long is it, how much time is it going to take to do this huge batch of work. And let's say it's a huge project for a company where they're going to have a new order tracking system or something like that. So and in between there, there's all kinds of things. And even at both ends of that, there's all kinds of things we need to make estimates about. So essentially, we use those estimates to make decisions about things. And uh, one example I frequently give about where I've used estimates many times is in companies where I've worked, where we had to decide what will next year's budget be for this team. So I think I can easily estimate uh, how much uh, per person the, the basic salaries are going to be, uh, what the bonuses might be, uh, what new equipment we need to buy, what space we need to maintain, what is it going to take to support these teams for things like uh, benefits and so on. So you can estimate all that stuff out based on historical your recent numbers and what you think the industry is doing, and, and that's fine. But that's not the kind of estimates I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the other side of this is the estimate where we're going to go. We have this chunk of work. How long is that going to take us to do? Sure. I run in, I work in like the client services industry. So very frequently when we're taking on new projects, uh, clients want to get an idea of what something's going to cost, right? And we have to um, figure out is this client going to be a good fit based on their budget and based on, uh, you know, what, what we can do for them? Have you, first of all, I guess like, uh, have you thought much about estimates in the client services industry versus, uh, working internally on something at a company? Oh yeah, most definitely. Matter of fact, some of the biggest dysfunctions that I've seen have been, you know, in, in that world where, where two companies are trying to, you know, work together the one wants to buy some software and the other wants to, you know, is there to create that software. And is that sort of what you're talking about when you yeah, say services? Yeah, yeah exactly. Because I, this, I'm not really talking about uh, things such as uh, what is it going to take for us to, to, uh, to give you support over this year or whatever. You know, again, all of these things, it's kind of a, a human nature to want to know what something's going to cost. Yeah. Uh, and so that's, that's just so natural that we think that that's the only way life can be. And yet I think there's plenty of examples in, you know, in, in general life where we don't get to know that. You know, you can't say, I, you know, I'd like to know uh, exactly, um, you know, how many years are you going to love me, you know, to your, to, to your potential spouse. Sure. You know, these kinds of things we, we really can't estimate. So and, and do we want to? What's the value of these things? So. Yeah. And I think the situation that you get into there is, um, it sounds like you're taking like a dismissive approach where you're just saying, I don't, I don't mean you specifically, but like, 
you know, the uh, the person who's supposed to be offering the estimate is basically saying, well, I can't possibly tell you how much uh, this is going to cost. You're just going to have to uh, feed me an endless amount of money until it's done. And I, f- I feel like that's the impression that people get a lot of time when they hear people talking about not giving people estimates or quotes or whatever on anything. Uh, what is your response to that kind of idea? Well, that that's jumping to a conclusion almost immediately about what could possibly be done and that's what we need to be exploring. What what are the possibilities? So if somebody's saying, well, just give us money until it's done, well, there, there are typical, let's just say a, a hotel has a, a landscaping, and they've hired a crew to do the landscaping, and they want to know how much is it going to cost uh, to, say, to maintain our landscaping. How much is it going to cost to maintain the landscaping? Well, we can tell you on a month-to-month basis what it'll cost, but do you mean over the next 50 years or next 100 years? You know, we, this is an ongoing service you're going to get from us. We'll come every, in every day and do the work that needs to be done. And that's going to cost you so much per day or per week or whatever it is we do. And I, I guess what you're getting at is if somebody has an idea of what their project is and they can communicate that very clearly, they believe that somebody should be able to say, we know exactly what it will take to do that work and therefore here's your price. So where's the unrealistic expectation in this? If we knew already what it would cost to make that software, if we could determine that, then we're giving up our, the use of our experience in knowing that things change quickly. Now, many companies have fallen into this trap where they've arranged with a, uh, with a firm to create their software, and then once they get to some point in the project, the, the firm uh, creating the software comes back and says, you know what, it's going to take a lot more than we thought. And at that point, somebody has to make a decision as to who's going to pay for that more. So one of the things that often happens is the, the company that is creating the software is prepared to say, this is why it's going to cost you more, and you need to pay us for that. You kept changing the requirements. You didn't respond to us quick enough, so we couldn't do the work in a timely manner, and we were using up your funds. Mm-hmm. And we communicated this with you over and over, and so on and so on. In the reverse, the company that uh, created the or is asking to have the software created has to be prepared to say, well, look, this, we defined everything here. And there's nothing more that you need to do. But if you can define that software that clearly, you probably don't need to get somebody to make it. it that's probably an existing package that you can just go buy. So, and even if it's not, I'm doubtful that somebody can, can define that project so accurately up front that we can get a usable working estimate that we can stick to throughout that project. Now, perhaps we can. And there's ways to have that happen if the firm... Creating the software uh, gives such a high price that it will cover almost any contingency, then that would solve that problem. But interestingly, that usually won't be the company that gets the bid because, uh, <laughs> because their price is going to be out of uh, the range of what they would like to pay compared to other people who are bidding them those lower prices. And so I think that in a lot of cases we'll see that where, where the company that actually understands the problems and pads their estimate sufficiently to cover for those contingencies is probably not going to get the work. Yeah. So let's talk about that just for one second here. What we have here is a situation where we're trying to deal with the unknowns by making a wild guess at what it would cost if the typical, if you can even have such a term, unknowns exist. And so then we'd have to have sufficient experience with this kind of project to know and I've actually heard people say, we just take the numbers we came up with and we triple it. Yep. And ridiculous things like that because unknown is like null in a database. You know, you, you can take uh, unknown times three 
and you still have unknown. So there's no easy answer to this. So this isn't about let's figure out how we can still be extremely predictable about cost and at the same time be realistic about change. And that, of course, is what Agile gives us, the idea that we welcome these changing requirements. It means that both sides of this, whoever's doing the software creation and whoever wants it created, has to understand the reality that we cannot define it up front and come up with a reasonable estimate of the cost. So you probably have a lot of questions. I've, I've been rambling on. Yeah, so yeah, what yeah. would you like to hear about? Yeah, so um, I think I've seen in my experience there's a tendency for the people giving the estimates sometimes to even fall into the trap of believing that when a project goes over budget or um, they get themselves into a situation where you know they're having to eat some of the cost because the estimates were inaccurate, that the problem is that they didn't estimate well enough or they can get better at estimating or they can get better at figuring out what the percentage is that they should multiply their original estimate by to account for uh, the typical overages uh, and, and stuff like that. What sort of problems do you see with this idea in thinking that, you know, the way to solve your bad estimates is to get better at estimating? Yeah, that's a very good point that I often uh, ponder. The, the thing is that getting better at something doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to help us. What we want is better. So better doesn't mean doing more of the same old thing. Right. So if you, for example, uh, if somebody's punching you in the face, you could ask them to punch you in the face better and, and, and that will solve the problem. And I, I don't think that'll solve the problem. Now, I'm not saying I'm not equating estimating to getting punched in the face or vice versa. I feel like it's pretty similar. It can be. And so now I've done about, I don't know how many, a number of these uh, sessions and workshops where I've gathered information from managers and developers and in these workshops, basically, we just uh, you know do some typical information gathering sessions, and almost invariably, we come up to the with the idea that that the estimates themselves are just a, a tool in helping us do something else. So it's not about the estimates, unless we use the term to mean the estimate is the price that we give to the uh, end customer. Yeah. In which case, it's no longer an estimate. We've no. done our estimates to come up with a price that we can give to the end customer. So the but price then, is the deliverable, not the estimation process. Yeah, if, and to even take that, that, that's a real good point. So the price is a deliverable into a process uh, where a decision needs to be made. So if we were to say, and a lot of people will kind of uh, use this logic, well, but an estimate has to have a range. You don't just give them a price. Yeah. Well, this is very questionable to me. Uh, they go through a, a next level deeper, they say, and it has to have a confidence level which is almost becoming comic to me because we're basically saying we're going to make you an estimate, but we're going to have an estimate on that estimate that's become between this range because an estimate is an approximate anyways. So if we say that's approximately, let's just use a number, that's approximately $10,000, which will cover a small team for a week's worth of work. But anyways, you don't do projects like that. But let's say um, $10,000, so we have a figure. And when we say that's approximate, that implies a range. So they want to say, well, how big of a range that is? We'll say, well, it's between uh, uh, 9000 and 12000 Now, is the customer going to go, oh, yeah, that's suitable to me uh, because if it doesn't go over 12000 So why didn't you just say 12000 in the first place? Sure. Because we're trying to pad this in, or, or let me say a different term. We're trying to give this in a way that's a little more acceptable. We're anchoring on them. It could be lower. But it won't be. But, yeah, so how often, you know, and pe I've had several people. Again, I've done this uh, with groups 
a number of times, and I've had several people out of hundreds who've said, yeah, we had a project come in way below what we thought it would be. But when you get into the discussion about it, it really comes into they were working in a much more agile manner, and they discovered the result that they wanted very quickly rather than using up the time they had, they stopped. And that's a great way to do it. But that's very infrequent. But, but anyways, uh, so beyond the range, we have this idea of the confidence level. So then we say, well, we're, and we're 75% confident that, that our numbers and our figures are correct. So if you got on the plane and they, they said, uh, we're 75% uh, certain that we'll land safely at the other end of this trip, you probably wouldn't get on a plane. Because that kind of confidence level, it means that and we're 25% going to have trouble. We, we just don't. We, or, or let's take that further. We, we aren't confident enough to say we're absolutely going to get to the other end. And so is that a sufficient confidence level? What if, it, what if it's 99%? What if it's 98%? Where do we come in and say, okay, we're willing to make this decision? But what kind of a decision are we talking about making? So if this is to buy software from a company that's going to create it for us, the decision we're trying to make is, should we start this project? So that's one kind of a decision. So should we start this project with your company? That's sort of the decision. So your company or the company that's creating the software, are they going to make a contract that says, we absolutely guarantee it's going to be within this range and not give the confidence level? No. So they have to have a contract that stays somewhere in there as long as everything is as, as you say it is or something like that. There's a, a clause we might have in there. But if you make any changes, we'll have to negotiate that at that time when you start making the changes. Well, most of us know that those changes are going to come. And when we ask the questions such as, let's get to a typical project, we're going to find out later on that the, that the data that they're, that's coming from their old system isn't going to work in their new system. But they, were, they felt that it would. And now somebody's got to write some adapters to bring that data across and things like that. The renegotiation starts. Well, guess what? That's a clause. That's a, a value of the Agile principles or the Agile values. Customer collaboration over contract negotiation. So can we get to that point? Uh, I'm going on. So I'll let you ask the questions. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, one of the things uh, with what you're talking about there, you know, you're saying, yes, you know, maybe we can give you an estimate if you tell us exactly what you need and we know that's exactly what you want and things aren't going to change and, and stuff like that. I think even in those cases where the customer thinks they know exactly what they want, which is more often than not in the situations that I've worked in, a client will come and they will be very confident in knowing like, no, this is exactly what I want. Maybe all of your other clients ask for changes and stuff like that, but we definitely won't. We have a hundred percent confidence in, in what we're building. And they, they all think this way, right? This is very, yes. very common. But even if that were the case, I feel like to give an estimate on something like a whole project you need to know everything about that project upfront in order to be able to give an estimate on it. And you're not really allowed to deviate from that. And in our industry with the sorts of products that we build, I feel like you're, you're removing, you're intentionally removing one of the biggest advantages we have in software development, which is that software is very flexible and very easy to change and throw away and rebuild. It's not like building a car or something uh, where you can't just, you know, scrap it and start again. You know, it's very expensive to do that sort of thing. Oh, oh so let's flip that over. If you could do that with cars, that's how we would be doing cars. If you could say, hey, I've got my brand new car, you know, I'm 22 years old and I want it to be this sporty little thing. And, and uh, I'm going to take uh, my girlfriend to the beach and whatnot. And so here we got that car that suits us. And then in three years, our girlfriend is now our, our spouse and we have a kid. 
and I want a back seat, and I want a more comfortable one. And if we could just say, okay, let's add that, and then, you know, a few years later, we need a station wagon. Yeah. If, if our car could be that way, that's how we would do our cars. 100%, right? Why, why would you want to have to throw it all away and build a brand new car just because uh, some piece of information changed that you, you know, didn't know up front or didn't make sense at the yeah, time? Yeah, so you're, you're pointing out that the reality between those two worlds allows us to think in different ways about these two worlds. Mm -hmm. So the, the reality does change. You know, like uh, there are many things that we used to do a certain way that we don't need to do a certain way anymore because the reality has changed. We, we might have at one time said, well, if you're going to deliver a letter from uh, Florida to California, you know, you've got to use this, these stagecoaches because that's how they get. Or put it on a, a ship and it takes a, a six-month journey around the Cape or whatever, whatever they do down there. I haven't traveled that route. And so, so now what do we do? We don't even deliver uh, those letters anymore. They come electronically. So things do change, and then we get to make the choice, you know. So, so we do have that in software. It's automatic. The, the build process, I think it's Jack Reeves wrote the great paper about this, where the, the software itself is the design document, or I should say the code is the design document. The building is a click of a button. When you build something, it's a click of a button. Whereas in, say, you know, uh, architecture of, a, let's say, an office complex, the design documents... Uh, are a relatively minor part of the process. When we actually make the uh, building, that's where mu much of the work goes on. And then once it's done, we don't have much flexibility afterwards. Yeah, that's a really interesting analogy, actually. Yeah, and of course, I didn't make it up myself. I haven't made up anything yet <laughs> uh, in my life. So other brilliant people have written on these topics, and uh, that's a particularly good paper to read. Um, I'll get the title of it if you need it later. Yeah, yeah, that would be great. So, you know, where we're getting at here is just simply that we have a type of freedom or a situation in software development where we can approach it very differently than creating a product uh, or, or, or manufacturing a product or building a building. Yeah, and I think to me that is the, the thing that really riles me up the most about having to give estimates on things is that we're deciding to remove the opportunity to build a better product based on things that we learn as we go. That's right. And so if the software, and I think we need to be clear about then, if the software you're creating, you already do know everything about and how you're going to go about doing it, then you have to have done enough and understand it well enough, this, this, there's two aspects to it, to be able to come up with those numbers. So if it's that rudimentary, then it's likely you have already written this software and you should no longer be working on writing this software again. Now you can work on how do we modify the things we've already done? For example, this stuff now contained in a library. Or this stuff is now, we can generate this code. Or we can just simply use the existing code we already wrote. So th there's sort of a, um, what you've brought up is 100% is the issue here, is that the world of business is changing. And it's constantly changing. So we are often reinventing the software that we need to write. The environment in which our software runs is changing. The security needs change. The performance needs change. Nobody was talking about cloud, you know, 10 or 15 years ago or whatever. You know, 20 years ago, nobody thought about things like asynchronous callbacks and so on. Those things didn't really exist. And then people started, you know, putting those into the browsers. And, you know, the way that our, we architect our project changes. Interestingly, all the people working on the projects also change. So somebody that was working for you five years ago is no longer working for you. The knowledge that that person contained about the way you were doing things is gone now. You can say, well, we documented it, but those documents are a pale comparison to the actual knowledge. 
So we have to understand it's an artificial constraint, you know, that we that we feel we need to have that estimate up front. It's just a, uh, I like to think of it, it's a contrivance of business. We've said this is the way we do business, and now we're stuck with that. We can th- rethink these things. We don't need to force ourselves to think in the ways we did previously. I think one of the other dangers in my experience is that when you're giving an estimate in the situations that, you know, I've had to give estimates, it's right at the beginning of a project because you're trying to earn some business, right? So it's at the point in time where you know the absolute least about that project that you ever will from that minute forward. Like every day after that, you will know more about the project than you did the day before. And you're trying to come up with an estimate, you know, at that point in time. And it also creates this environment, I feel like, where if you have to give a client an estimate with and present it in such a way that, you know, we're confident that we can build what you need in X amount of time for X dollars, you're setting this expectation in the client's mind that you know what you need to build and you have all the details figured out and you know exactly what you need to do. And now asking clarifying questions about their requirements or, or communicating with the client all of a sudden feels like a risky thing to do because it can hurt the client's impression of your understanding of the project. You oh, know that's I mean? brilliant. That's a very good point. Uh, I wish I had thought of that. Excellent. Yeah, that's, I think you're absolutely right. So it's like once you've, once you've laid the groundwork for we understand this and we know what it'll cost, and then you need a clarification later on, uh, I'm rephrasing what you said, you're now saying, wait, I didn't actually understand it. Or I padded this so that I could ask these questions later. Or what? Exactly. It's, it really harms the trust and the relationship. So, you know, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation, the idea of uh, how do we convince people to change? How do we convince people to do things differently? And you'll be very disappointed to know that we can't. Uh, so this isn't a matter of convincing people of anything. So I've had, uh, I share this frequently, I've had at least 200 face-to-face conversations about this topic. Because over the years in, in Twitter, I would just mention, whenever I had a free half hour or an hour, I would tweet that out and say, hey, I want to talk about no estimates or mob programming. Anybody interested? And I got lots of takers on there, usually uh, two or three a week. And over a year's period, that's, you know, a hundred people. And over two years period, that's a couple hundred people. So I've had this conversation over and over. And what I've found usually is there is no easy answer to this. But that most people who, once they start questioning these things, they actually go on to get a better understanding of what the problem we're trying to solve. So there's no way I can give somebody an answer to how are you going to convince someone else. I can't even, there's no way I can even say, here's the things you need to know so that you can better understand these things. This is about every individual and every company tackling this for themselves, determining what's going to work in their context. So some people would want it to be where the discussion is limited to specific domains. But this is software development is the domain. Software development is software development. If you're not doing software development, then this discussion really doesn't relate as far as I'm concerned. I'm just talking about mostly cost estimating in software development. And that cost estimating, I'm really saying, is about the time because we base the cost on time. So it really comes down to do we know enough about something to determine how much time it will take to do that? Now, if you've got five developers on your team and you are trying to take on some work for a company and you go and you as you're looking at it, you go, you we're gonna need a lot more developers. And so now you give them a bid based on the idea that you're gonna have to ramp up to another five more developers, let's say. How do you know how effective they're gonna be? 
there's so many unknowns in here. I think we need to just flip this thing over and come up with a better way of approaching the business of doing software development. And there's lots of people doing that now. You know, just the idea of let's work as par- closely as partners. Uh, we, we get good at creating software in small, potentially very valuable bits, but we don't know how valuable they are until we deliver them. So we have to, first of all, buy into that idea that we can guess all we want, uh, how valuable these things will be, but without having a way to validate that, we won't know. So we have to get good at turning out small bits and validating it. And there's lots of arguments why that won't work. So we have to decide for ourselves, what world do we want to live in? How do we want to deal with these things? That won't work you know, in, if the argument's going to be, well, then all of our competitors will know what we're doing. I think there's ways to answer that, but it's not something I put into a podcast. I think there are ways of dealing with that, and many companies are now. There's other things we need to take into consideration, so this just grows quite a bit. The estimates are not necessarily serving us well. That's the whole point. We have to accept it that maybe they're not, and let's validate for ourselves that they are serving us well before we say, yep, that's the way to go. Yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about a lot of the reasons or a lot of the issues with with estimation and a lot of the problems that can arise from trying to derive too much value from them necessarily. But I think it would be interesting to talk about what some of the alternatives can be for trying to make a particular decision. If we come back to what we were talking about before, where in my situation, estimates are being used because a client wants to know a price, right? Yes. What are some alternative ways that we can give a client a known price without dealing with estimation. So I, I don't know how you can do that. That's, that's sort of the point. So we're, to me, we're at the wrong level if that's the discussion. The discussion is how can we do business without having to give, without having to demand a price. So let, I'll take the, the place of the customer. So I need to have some custom software. And so I go out into the marketplace to find somebody to make that software for me. Now, if I'm not sophisticated enough to already have several vendors, if we want to call it that, that I've worked with that do a real good job of doing this, then I have to go out cold and find somebody in the world who can write this software for me. That probably fails frequently. I don't know what the percentages would be, but I'd say that's, that's not a good situation to be in. It's just like, you know, the, at the last minute you need to get your a, a medical thing attended to and you're not near your, your regular doctor, you're going to get a doctor that you have no experience with, may not be able to communicate with, uh, so on and so on. So, now we're changing the level of our discussion. That's the scenario you're talking about. We have a company that wants to get some software made. They need to go out and find somebody to make that software. What is the ideal situation for them? So let's try that. You know, maybe the question would be, what if there was another way? What, what might that look like? What if, this is one I like to ask frequently, what if the model we've been using is not serving us well? Have we proven that it's serving us well? Now I've worked on many a project. And I think very frequently it doesn't work out well and nobody's happy with it. So if we just blind ourselves to that and say, no, no, this is the way it has to be, you know, and you, our guys are the professionals, you software developers are the professionals, and therefore you have to give us a price, we kind of have a broken model here. How do you know that? How do you validate that that's what we should be able to do? It's because we think of business that way. We want, we're going to buy a fleet of trucks. That's an easy decision to make compared to we need to get this software made. Fleet of trucks, we can go out, find out what kinds of trucks are available, compare the stats, look at their uh, maintenance uh, statistics about how long these trucks last. And still, even this year, we don't know compared to last year's model. And we can make those decisions based on that kind of information. I don't think that information is usually available in software in the software world. 
So what is the decision that has to be made? So if the customer is demanding a price, then we already know what we need to deal with. We need to have a way of giving them a price that they are satisfied with starting to do business with us and a way to have them pay us more when the changes start happening. So that's sort of a typical model. There's probably other typical models. Yeah. I guess I guess for me, the price thing comes down to like if you take that back like one more level, it's really about a client needs to decide if it makes financial sense for them to make the investment in the solution that they're trying to get. Yes. Uh from from us. And I read an article by by Neil Killick actually uh the other day. Uh, an older one, I think it was from 2000, maybe 2013. And he talked about an approach that I've used with uh, different clients in the past that I think has worked well, that I would think would be interesting to discuss, which is that if you have a known budget upfront, then that can be the fixed price. As long as you're working in an iterative, agile way where you're trying to deliver value as early as possible and continuously ship working software. So you have to have like a flexible scope, right? A flexible level of features that you want to include, or maybe a flexible level of polish or, or whatever that you want to add onto it. But for. So that's for, a completely different model than asking for a price. Cause a price, the way we're using the term price is a price for a certain amount of features or a certain amount of software. If we, if we use the term price as being for a certain number of uh, weeks work, then that's, that's, you're buying a whole different thing, and that's a whole different model, which, of course, changes. We no longer have an estimate. It, but if the customer wants to know how, how much is it going to cost us to get to where we have a viable product, again, that's something that we need to discover that we can't really answer. But people want, they want that confidence to be able to make that answer. And they think they should be able to do it. I think you said this earlier. We, we start um, feeling that we just need to get better at estimates. And I think what we're talking about now is what we need to do is get a better approach to, to the business of software. So I would ask a, a, a bigger question. How, how many companies that need software that's custom software, how many of them should actually be figuring out how to become software creators themselves? Because the value here isn't for them isn't in getting the software that they need. I think the, the thing is in getting a process where they can always have the software they need or always be taking those steps to get the software they need. And that, can you hand that off to another company? Can you just say, oh, go make this. This is what we need it to do. If it's very rudimentary software, we're writing a lot of stuff we don't need over and over and over again. That's software that has already been created. We should find a way to not have to do that anymore. So, you know, it's like there's a lot. This is a much bigger topic than just, it's not about estimating. I want to be really clear. The estimates are merely a smell. And I use the smell in, in this way. A smell in code is a pattern or something that we can notice that indicates a possible problem. So one typical smell is a long method. If you have a, a method with a thousand lines of code, then you can say that's a smell that indicates this is probably, uh, there's probably problems within this. And I see estimates the same way. It's the very first little uh, articles I wrote about this, that's what I was pointing out, is that the estimates themselves are not a problem. The estimates are almost always, or I should say, when I've noticed certain types of problems, there was always an element of estimates as part of it. So that got me looking at it to say, okay, what is the part estimates are playing in this? Are they feeding the problem? Are they merely a coincidental thing? Are they caused by the problem? And I think the problem often is the kinds of decisions we've been deciding or trying to decide about. 
Like, should we do this project? Can we make enough money on it? That's a great one. You know, it's like we, we not only need to estimate the cost, we need to estimate the value. And it's the estimate for the value uh, based on anything real. I've seen uh, many a time people say something effective. If we can get this project into use before Christmas or let's say before the new year because it's about the new whatever structure we're going to use, that will up our bottom line of this company by $30 million. Well, what's that based on? You know, a lot of times these numbers are based on the same kinds of guesses and the same kinds of uh, hopes and, and wishes that the uh, time for making this software is. So what do we do about that? So I, th I think we can look at this in a very different way, and this is the approach that I take. Let's get really good, A, at writing software well so that it's easy to change, that it's easy to fix, that it's easy to maintain, it's easy to enhance, and it's easy to discard if we decide we don't need this chunk. If we keep our code really simple, then we have something we can continue working on. If we keep our application really simple, as few features as possible, and let's discover the needed features, and any bit of a feature that we add that it turns out people don't need, let's remove it to keep the code simple, and so on and so on. So if we get really good at creating the software, then we can determine what is the business model that we can use to take advantage of that. So if we know that things need to change, and we know that things are going to change regardless if we want them to or not, how frequently have we been on projects where someone said, we need a better change control process? Well, okay, we're doomed from the start. That's what Agile basically says is, okay, this is about a changing thing. We welcome change even late in, in the process. So, yeah, we got it. This has got to change. This isn't about estimating or not estimating. This is about how do we make the kinds of decisions we're making and are we making, the right are we making decisions about the right kinds of things? I think we need to move up that level. If the estimates are just a, um, an indication of a potential problem, and if we find that there is no problem, then we can keep using those estimates. If we find there is one, then let's solve that. Let's solve for that. I think that's a really, really interesting point. And it ties into, you know, what we talked about a little earlier and, and what I've been thinking about here, which is that, you know, the estimates themselves, I don't really see them as being the problem. It's just the things that end up coming along with it, like uh, the reduced opportunity to have open communication because you're expected to have full knowledge of the requirements or the potential for losing money because you have to have this difficult financial conversation. I, you know, once you've passed the deadline and you didn't have any communication along the way, letting the client know that, you know, the price was going to have to change and, and now who eats that cost and or maybe you end up building, you know, the wrong thing and you don't solve the problem for the customer at all because of the fact that you, you gave them the impression that you had everything figured out and that you understood the requirements up front. And these are the things that I see coming from estimation. So whenever a project starts with estimation, I feel like you're just getting started on the wrong foot. Yes. So I, I want to, so what we were just talking about is that if we look at the S, we say, oh, we're starting with estimates again, then that's the smell indicator to me. Exactly. It's like, oh, look, yeah. uh, we, we know how this has ended over and over for us, so why are we starting with the estimates? And then, so, you know, then we're going to have to get through that of, well, we need to know what the price will be. Okay, why do we feel we need to know what the price will be? Now, it's not about an open-ended ticket for the people creating the software. It's about a close collaboration where we're really good at discovering the best value. So this is examples that I give, and I've done these in projects for many years now. If we can take what we imagine our project to be, so let's, let's use the example of a project where somebody has already done a bunch of requirements. Well, if they've done a good job with that, then they've done a substantial amount of work already. So let's take a look at those and 
if we can take that and pick out something to do there that people feel will have a reasonably good chance of having value, we can just do that first part. It has to be independent from the rest of the project to be able to deliver value. If we can find that and do that part and get it delivered into real use, then we can make a discovery. Did that bring value or not? Until we get it into use, we can't discover that. Let's take that a big step further. If we find out it doesn't give us value, now we've learned something that is valuable. So we either get real value that end up, somebody ends up using it, or we get real value in learning about the things that we can't get value from. And then we take the next step. So if we get used to that little step process, and the people who are buying software get good at it as well, they have to be part of this, then we can step quickly towards delivering the least amount of the project possible. This is what I call deliver software until bored. So if you, if you, and I've had this happen enough times that I believe it's a real pattern. If you have this big idea of your project, but you start doing little bits that you can deliver and you've got to get good at delivering actual value, maybe even in the first two or three days, and then daily after that, if you get good at doing that, you start steering towards the really valuable stuff in your project. You get better and better at it on this particular project because the use of it is pointing to you what's the next best thing to do. And often by that time, we've moved to stuff we couldn't have thought of beforehand. And now we're on to the real value process. We're really discovering what's going to be useful to our customers. We can still be inventing things without that, and we can be trying it without that. The end result being we've changed our process. We're no longer saying, how much is this whole project going to cost? And it's a little different view. What's the least of what we can do, and how can we start learning to deliver better value? That's a much better place to be. And that's what we need to do as an industry. We need to learn how to do this. It's not going to solve every problem in every project, but it certainly has served, solved a lot for me. So that's a different model completely than asking for a price and then delivering to that price, which I don't think frequently works. I often hear people say something like, oh, but we, we, we made those estimates, but then we, re, we, we re-estimate every week. We'll get together and we'll determine, oh, what's changed and so on. And, and so at some point, I hope, we would go, yeah, those estimates aren't actually helping us, are they? Because we've got to change them every week what, from what we've learned. What is the value of the estimate at that point? Yeah, exactly. So uh, this has been, uh, we're just cracking the, the door a little bit here and looking, peeking in to what might the future be like. But there are lots of people working this way right now. You know, we can argue, oh, no estimates, uh, you know, that can't possibly be. And yet there's many of us working this way already. So, I, you know, it's, it's almost a, a non-discussion for me. It's like, you know, that nobody can tell me that these things don't work because they work for me. And uh, we've been doing them for quite a while. Not just a, a few months, not just a few years, you know, but many years. Yeah, for sure. I think that's probably uh, a great place to end it on honestly this has been like a really awesome conversation i was really hoping to get into some more stuff with you but we managed to talk about this for for almost an hour at this point um so maybe maybe down the road i can get you on again and we can talk about the mob programming stuff that you've been into lately is there anything that you wanted to get into a little bit more or plug or anything before uh, we get going um yeah so perhaps we can bring up the that other topic of mob programming and talk about the mob programming conference that we're planning yeah that would be great so what has happened over the last uh, since 2011, I've been invited to speak on this topic and share the things that we've done. Well, one of the people that heard us talking, uh, heard me talking about this at a conference is Nancy Van Schoenderwerk, who works out of Boston. And so uh, her and I and Llewellyn Falco, I learned a lot from him on things about uh, advanced pair programming and doing code katas. 
over the last 10 years. And so we got together and decided we'd like to do a little conference. It's going to be a tiny conference. I believe we have room for about 110 or 120 people. The Mob Programming Conference is on May 1st and 2nd, and the uh, Agile Games uh, precedes that, and I believe it's the last three, day, three days of April. So anyways, basically what we're going to do is have a few little talks, but mostly we're going to, we're going to have a hands-on mob programming conference. We're going to split into as many teams as we have space for, and we're going to just hold these sessions and then do retrospectives or open space sessions about what did we learn and what are we learning. So throughout two days, we're just going to sit, do mob programming, sharing our ideas, sharing how we work. And we're, we're trying to keep the cost as low as possible. And uh, right now, early bird uh, tickets are available. And we're really excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've done a, a ton of pair programming. And I've heard a little bit about Bob programming, but haven't done a ton of it. So I'm definitely going to look into seeing if I can make it out to that conference because it sounds like it would be a really interesting and unique event. I love the idea of a really like hands-on, interactive stuff versus just kind of the more lecture style typical conference format so it sounds like a really great opportunity for people to to learn more about this stuff and get some practice with it yeah that's exactly our concept is we what we want is a a, a conference where people uh, will just be hands-on that's awesome so what is the best way for people to kind of keep up uh, with what you're doing and what you've got going on and maybe learn more about some of the ideas that we've, we talked about today on this podcast? Well, I've, I'm always inviting everybody to, uh, to get in contact with me directly. Uh, the easiest way to do that is through Twitter. And I'm always open to Skype if I can or we can communicate other ways, Skype or Hangout or whatever. Uh, as far as the conference goes, it's mobprogrammingconference.com. And then also we have a mobprogramming.org website, which is just a, a collection of some of the things we wrote about the mob programming. And on my own blog, which if you just Google my name, I guess is the way to say it, you'll find my blog in the first couple posts. And then you, you can read stuff about no estimates there if, if you have any interest on going further on, on that thinking. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending the time to come on the podcast with me. I've learned a ton and it's been awesome having a chance to talk to you. Well, I had a great time. So maybe sometime soon we can have a, a good full session on mob programming. Absolutely. Uh, well, thanks again for coming on. Anybody who's interested in show notes, you can check them out at fullstackradio.com slash 31. If you could rate and review the show on iTunes, that's always helpful, helping us reach uh, new people and helping people discover us. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. <laughs>